Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season eight, episode five, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2000 Canadian coming-of-age werewolf film, Ginger Snaps. It was directed by John Fawcett and written by Karen Walton. It stars Emily Perkins, Catherine Isabel, Chris Lemshi, and Mimi Rogers. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Just a fair warning, we will be mentioning suicide in this episode. Resources are in the show notes for those who need them. Are you still here? Okay, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you please read the plot summary? (laughs) Yes, I will. (laughs) Teenage sisters Ginger and Bridget, obsessed with death and dying, often fantasize what their deaths will look like, making them stand out from their family and classmates. Sick of all the quote-unquote normies, they decide to use the recent violent dog killings as an excuse to play a prank on a bully. That very same night, Ginger starts her first period and is attacked by a terrifying creature known as the Beast of Bailey Downs. Ginger survives, but she's changed. Not only more in tune with her sexuality, but she's also more violent and classmates end up dead. Will Bridget be able to save their boring town from her sister Ginger? If so, will she then be able to save Ginger from herself? Tune in next week to find out. (laughs) Drama, mystery, (laughs) murder. (laughs) All right, so let's get into the behind the scenes of this film. So Alison Pierce has an excellent book called Women Make Horror, and y'all should check it out. In one of the chapters entitled Gender, Genre, and Authorship in Ginger Snaps by Katarzyna Pezkevich, They talk about the origin stories surrounding the film, particularly screenwriter Karen Walton's involvement. Quote, in a number of interviews, Walton, for whom Ginger Snaps was her first feature length screenplay, recalls that she was approached by director John Fawcett, who wanted to do a teen werewolf movie and asked her to write the script. Initially, Walton vigorously resisted the idea, as unlike Fawcett, she did not consider herself a fan of horror films. She recalls, quote, I laughed and said no with a long tirade about women being horror's cliche victims, issues of depiction, etc. And then John said, that's exactly why you should write one, unquote. Paskovich continues and writes, Fawcett convinced Walton this film would reinterpret the genre. As Matisse reports, even though she was reluctant to write the script for all the feminist reasons that the genre is formulaic and misogynist, in the end, she agreed under the condition that she be allowed to break all the rules. According to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the two encountered trouble financing the film. They approached producer Steve Hoban, 
with whom they had worked with before, and he agreed to produce. Holbin employed Ken Chubb to edit and polish the story as well. Telefilm would eventually fund the rest, but production hit a snag. According to the Ginger Snaps press kit, casting the two leads met with substantial difficulty. While a casting director was easily found in for Los Angeles, Canadian casting directors proved to be appalled by the horror, gore, and language. When one finally agreed to pick up the film, the Columbine shooting and another school shooting in Alberta suddenly thrust the public spotlight on violent teens. The Toronto Star's announcement that Telefilm was funding a teen slasher movie met with a flurry of debate and outrage in the media, which generated a significant amount of adverse publicity in proportion to the size of the project. Paskovich writes, quote, When it was announced that Telefilm, one of the Canadian government's principal instruments for supporting the national audio-visual industry, was funding a horror movie involving two adolescent girls, six prominent Toronto casting directors who preferred to remain anonymous announced that they were going to boycott Ginger Snaps for its violent subject matter and horror gore, along with its particularly vivid language. They decided that, quote, it was not Canadian for ladies to say fuck and talk about their periods, unquote. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) It's not Canadian. (laughs) And... (laughs) (laughs) And they thought that telefilm, that the telefilm money should be taken back, unquote. Paskovich also writes, the hostile responses to Ginger Snaps were acutely gendered in nature. During the media outcry over the film, it was Walton, not Fawcett or any of his male colleagues, who was criticized for contributing to a culture of teenage violence, unquote. Oh, please. Listen, I, okay, this joke would have been really funny if I was still Canadian. <laughs> but according to Ancestry.com, some people had sex with other people <laughs> in, in, in my ancestry. So uh, we are not, we found out my family is not Canadian. We're actually Irish. <laughs> Your whole life is a lie. Basically, yeah. Because I think in our Valentine's, uh, our, our My Bloody Valentine episode, I talk about being Canadian, but I'm yep. not. <laughs> I'm not Canadian. I'm Irish. Um, But I was going to say, like, okay, it's not Canadian to say fuck and talk about my period. Well, okay, I'm not Canadian now. So fuck, 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 fuck. And I got my period today. Oh. So there. Oh, the irony. (laughs) According to the Ginger Snaps press kit, principal photography took place between October 25th and December 6th, 1999, so it lasted a little over six weeks. Three of Toronto's suburbs, Etobicoke, Brampton, and Scarborough, served as a suburb of Bailey Downs. According to Ernest Matisse, Ginger Snaps premiered at the Munich Film Festival at the Munich Fantasy Film Festival in August 2000. The next month, it played at the 2000 Toronto International Film Festival, where it briefly received media attention following the positive word of mouth that had built up from Munich. Although called one of the standouts at the Toronto Festival, attention died off and the film fouled an unfocused release strategy, playing at various film festivals and building up more word of mouth. Ginger Snaps would reach Canadian cinemas in May 2001, where it was the fifth highest grossing Canadian-made film. Unfortunately, it did not do well in the United States, where it was underpromoted, making it a box office failure overall. However, once it went to home video, the film gained new life under a cult following. The increase in DVD and video sales are stated as the reason it received a sequel and a prequel film. 
So according to Jack Wilhelmy for morbidlybeautiful.com, quote, Ginger Snaps challenged audiences to see women as the hero and the villain all at once. However, it could be argued that Ginger isn't a villain so much as she is just a, so much as she is a person completely in touch with her own power, comfortable in her own skin and unabashed in her bodily desires. In fact, that notion is what makes the film truly terrifying to those who innately fear what could happen if women embrace their bodies and themselves in a way that didn't rely on a man to save them, unquote. And according to Michaela Elizabeth Canales, Ginger Snaps is the closest my hypercritical self has ever come to finding a feminist horror perfection. <laughs> Let's get into the Bechtel test. Uh, yes, it passes a lot, especially between the two sisters. Nice. And it even passes a few times with the mother as well, which is nice. Oh, yeah. Nice. Okay, cool. Let's talk about Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? No. Even though the movie centers primarily around women, there are more supporting characters who are men in this film. Huh. Did a woman write, direct, producer edit the film? It was written by Karen Walton, and it was produced by Karen Lee Hall. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. Were there any openly LGBT plus characters in the film? No, but we are going to talk about the queer coding that is in Ginger Snaps. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's start off with the moon cycle, body horror, and lycanthropy. Yes. Nat Bremer writes for Wicked Horror, quote, The first clear thing that Ginger Snaps uses to relate lycanthropy to puberty is the physical transformation itself. Throughout the movie, the connection is made between the changes of puberty and the admittedly more extreme changes that Ginger prepares to go through after her werewolf bite. The most overt might be Ginger's mother asking if she's started growing hair in funny places. It's not subtle, but it doesn't need to be in order to work and actually winds up working really well. Yeah, I was reading an interview that Karen Walton did for Rue Morgue magazine, and apparently she did not intend for there to be such a close relation between Ginger getting her period and also becoming a werewolf. Her script editor was the one that said something like, um, you've got a great chance to use this as a metaphor and to really hit it home. And she was like, cool. And so she did. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's actually kind of wild. Because yeah. they are so, like, closely linked, I feel like. This film was, like, a uh, it's so perfect. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's she made it more, li- like, she made it more closely linked after that. Like, Ugh. I think after they were they were editing the script and they were like, I think we should add more about this in here. <laughs> We've got something. <laughs> We've got something. Genius. <laughs> so according to Kelsey Matson in her article for Medium, Quote, body horror is a widely examined subject in the genre. The Fly, The Thing, Eraserhead, all other werewolf films. But the lycanthropy as allegory for puberty feels radical and innovative when reinvented through the lens of a female perspective. Ginger's transformation into womanhood is analogous to her evolution into a monster. That's a dire statement, but not far off from the truth of how some women feel as their bodies change. Which, side note, as a pregnant woman, I can tell you, <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, you when after puberty, you think you're done, and it, and if you decide to have children or just aging, even women yeah. aging, yeah. your body is just never done changing. Yeah, tell me about it. 
Oh, man. So, to continue with the quote, adolescent hormones are terrifying, confusing, and unexpected, specific to the individual. And this story is told with studious, subversive, satirical awareness that avoids devolving into the quote-unquote monstrous woman trope. Yeah, and I actually really love how this is one of the very few female werewolf movies. I know we've said this before in other episodes, but it makes way more sense for a woman for, for women to be werewolves yes. and not just women, but those who identify as queer. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But according to Joanna Isaacson, Ginger Snaps writes a long-standing wrong in the history of horror film. The werewolf, a deeply embodied beast that waxes and wanes with the cycles of the moon and therefore should be logically associated with female menstrual cycles, has nevertheless been generally depicted as male. In Ginger Snaps, the werewolf is violent, gloriously female, and yet the film does not fully reject the traditions and tropes that the werewolf film has left in its wake. Rather, it gleefully mutilates them to fit the needs of its own era of sexist double standards, unquote. And Aaron M. Flattery says of the male werewolf, quote, the male lycanthrope is doomed to endure a monthly transformation into a monstrous murderous beast, the other that challenges normality through its very existence. The agony of the male werewolf, therefore, is generally, is generally believed to exist only with the regard to the regret he feels for the previous night's violent excesses. However, it is actually the male lycanthrope's bodily alignment with the female other that causes his distress. Forced to confront an abject body tied to a monthly lunar cycle, the male werewolf is feminized. Not only does the sufferer's body not respect the boundary between human and animal, but the tentative boundary between male and female is also violated. And it is this transgression that accounts for the true agony of the classic male werewolf, unquote. <laughs> it's excellent. Yes. And there is some definite body horror in menstruating. Oh, just God. Like, oh, like yeah. already. Yeah. Although it is completely normal, it is weirdly still a horror show. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, according to Bianca Nelson, the nurse's diction also re-articulates the scientific discourses of medicine. Emily Martin explains that medical language describes the process of menstruation as a mechanism expelling a waste product. Medical textbooks describe menstrual blood as the debris of the uterine lining, which is the result of necrosis or death tissue. Jesus Christ! Martin suggests that our scientific explanations for menstruation carry the idea of production gone awire or the expulsion of products of no use. Medical texts and illustrations show menstruation as a chaotic disintegration of the form, which describes it as ceasing, dying, losing, and expelling. Wow. Martin proposes that these are not neutral terms, but ones that convey failure and dissolution. Oh my god. I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, where the school nurse in Ginger Snaps refers to a discharge, which is squeezed out like a pump, she likens the blood to a kind of garbage. She further accentuates this by calling the discharge a brownish blackage, blackish sludge. Gross. <laughs> so we're already like even in like medical terms we're demonizing menstruating 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> so, oh my God. I'm so glad that like I didn't read any of that when I was young because I would have been traumatized. I would have been like, get this out. Get this out of my body. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's interesting how we're we're demonizing menstruating even in our medical books. So of course, like how how is anyone supposed to look at this as a natural phenomenon? Yeah, like if, will you relax, pal? Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. So I mentioned earlier that we were going to talk about queer coding. Um and before we do, uh, it's not the next topic, but it's the topic after. Um, I still want to add another quote here by Joanna Isaacson, uh, who says, The sisters' prolonged pubescence is coded queer as they distinguish th- themselves from the breeder's machine that is high school, full of basic pleasure models, standard cum buckety date bait, and cave boys. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. They're insulting feminist labels for the normies. For them, menstruation is paired with the consumerist banality as we see when they stand in front of an oversized wall of sanitary napkins and a bland fluorescent store, unquote. So I thought that that was a really interesting observation that menstruating equals heteronormativity, basically. But not only that, but consumerism. And that was what I thought was really neat because normally consumerism and horror is shown through a zombie film. Mm-hmm. But here we have the horrors of consumerism in a coming of age werewolf film. So I thought that was kind of neat. It makes sense though, because it's, it's like as soon as you're old enough to get your period, you're old enough to buy into like the beauty industry. So yeah. And that's kind of what happens to Ginger. Yeah. Hmm. Mm, makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the identity, duality, and the monstrous feminine. Yes, the thing that I really love about this film, and something that I think it captures so beautifully, is duality. And it's so funny to me that this is the second film we've talked about with Catherine Isabel in it, where she plays, like, this dual role. Like, it's got to be a theme of hers. <laughs> And in these sisters, we get a great double-sided coin from the same origin, and it shows the changes that they go through and the divergent paths that lead them to discover who they are and what they're made of. And they both become something entirely different, yet are bound by their DNA. This is true. And I want to share that this film almost feels like it's about one girl. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I... Firstly, I like to imagine that Ginger and Bridget are the same person. And by killing this darker half, Bridget has escaped the quote unquote darker part of herself. Mm-hmm. Um, according to Aaron Flattery, quote, Ginger Snaps is a doppelganger narrative. It is Bridget who suffers under the agony of Ginger's transformation. For in losing Ginger, Bridget loses her identity as well. Bridget longs for the reconciliation of her and her sister. But as the two have become two distinct persons in Ginger's monstrosity, this is impossible. Coded as Carol Clover's final girl figure, Bridget destroys her sister, thereby coming to stand for the symbolic order she resists so enthusiastically at the start of the film. Unquote. But anyway, let's get back to Ginger's duality. Yeah, we'll talk about the roles of each sister in a second, but I want to take a minute to focus solely on Ginger as well, because her duality says a lot about female sexuality and perspective. And Nat Bremer writes, Aggression is a major factor. 
Ginger adopts new cravings, and among them is a hunger for human flesh. This sort of radically goes in two directions. One is a sexual hunger, which Ginger definitely has after her bite, and the other is a literal hunger for flesh. Mm. One of the best things Ginger Snap does is explore female sexuality as both a metaphor and a direct portrayal at the same time. Her need for sex and her need to eat are not indistinguishable. Ginger Snaps takes all of these ideas and turns them into a form of empowerment. Once Ginger realizes the changes her body is going through and accepts them, she begins to own herself and her sexuality. Her confidence skyrockets. Kelsey Matson also writes, Ginger effectively becomes the monstrous feminine, sexualized but frightening, beyond man's control and therefore deadly to them. <laughs> Which, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally, first dominating a misogynist during sex, then ripping other men's bodies to shreds. It could be easy to read this as the long-standing trope played by straight, equating women's power to something dangerous needing proper subduing. Yet, it's beautifully upended and repurposed because we focus entirely on Ginger's emotions. The prism of her viewpoint makes the fear of her transformation not a moral judgment call, but the body horror of adolescence taken to its utmost terrifying possibility. Ginger discovers a kind of power over men through sexuality and violence, but she remains just as lost as before. She never fully comprehends the changes and was effectively robbed of any choice in the matter. She's swept away in both the development of her body as a human and her metamorphosis into a murderous creature. She didn't ask to be bitten any more than she asked for her period. She's rocked back and forth between extremes like a ship in a storm, never demonized even as she rakes up a body count. While sexual, she isn't the male power fantasy of the exploited sex object, and while murderous, she's not the untamed bad woman deserving of punishment. She's sympathetic, heartbreaking, and utterly a teenage girl, one trying to find herself in the middle of a frightening, harsh, unforgiving world that hurts women for existing. By allowing Ginger to possess qualities that society paints as oppositional for women, to both flourish and stumble without vilification, she becomes a complex female character with flaws, insecurities, and fears. Yeah, and this all very much reminds me of Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine. Um, mm -hmm. Bianca Nelson says of it, Creed's The Monstrous Feminine considers how representations of body horror are connected to Kristeva's theory of objection. Kristeva's psychoanalytic account of feminine sexuality in turn lends force to a reading of ginger snaps that incorporates feminist critiques of reproduction narratives. Almost every article that I read mentioned Barbara Creed's The Monstrous Feminine when mm -hmm. looking up ginger snaps because it is like the perfect example of it. Oh my god, I know. How could it not be? <laughs> well, yeah, and I know another example is always alien like the xenomorphs yes yep but i think even more so ginger snaps is the monstrous feminine it's perfect yes agreed uh so obviously here like ginger is the more aggressive forward one and she wants to die and she cuts herself off from the outside world but 
she's the one with all of this like burning rage and she has no idea how to displace it mm-hmm. but to me anyway like in a way it feels like it's all kind of a show like it's it's destructive in a way that really scares Bridget who is seen as very meek and mild and I think a lot of it has to do with her being afraid of losing her sister and she takes on the burden of trying to save her like Bridget does and mm-hmm. something that really it's something that really forces her out of her own comfort zone and thrusts her into the real world at a really high velocity mm-hmm. <laughs> and seeing her sister spiral in that way kind of brings her back into her own sense of reality so do you think that this that their pact to to commit suicide together do you think that that comes from them being bored it could and i there's mean there's no excitement and when they finally get some excitement bridget is like uh no yeah i i mean yeah and i think that not to say that they are like unwise or anything like that but they are so young they haven't really experienced a whole lot so like their life is just starting right (laughs) and they they don't really have like any idea of what is possible or what is out there because all they've ever known is like their little hometown and like their shitty high school and stuff like that so i definitely think that boredom is a huge factor in that yeah yeah i think for them as as teens that are bullied and that don't agree or or like anything that they see around them and stuff Mm -hmm. i think that their their suicide pact is born from from boredom yeah and i mean like bridget is afraid that they'll that their deaths will be a spectacle yes so bridget is not looking for attention at yeah. all yeah and so that's why i feel like ginger is almost she's almost already preying on her sister before she even becomes a werewolf yeah yeah She's kind of that. using <laughs> her sister's um, meekness as a way of, like, having someone to do something with. Yeah. Because Bridget will do what Ginger wants to do until she stands up to her at the end. Exactly. And says, I'm not dying with you. I'm not dying in this room with you yeah. or whatever. I think that's a huge comfort for Ginger, too, because she knows that there will always be someone there. Like, she yes. will never truly, truly be alone because she's so close with her sister but at the same time bridget is like i don't care but uh, <laughs> about but being alone selfish. <laughs> that's selfish right, right? Yeah. to yeah to bring somebody into your hell mm-hmm. <laughs> that well, doesn't need to be there misery loves company so exactly you know. <laughs> yeah yeah hmm. it's pretty sad actually when you think about it it is this movie is actually very sad yeah but um we you and i we both have sisters so i can see how you and i would especially would really enjoy this horror movie but. yes for sure <laughs> mm. i was like mm, sounds like me and my sisters mm. <laughs> yeah you know like something you want to be there for them you want to do things with them but at the same time like as we talked about earlier you're two separate beings yes like you're not you aren't the same person. And I think this was, yeah, this is Bridget's way of stepping back and becoming her own person. Okay, continue. 
Kelsey Matson says again, despite the attention paid to Ginger, Bridget holds equal narrative importance. Yes. There's no white knight male survivor swooping in to shoot a silver bullet. Her survival and Ginger's survival depends entirely on her. Bridget's sister, her only and best friend, once in revered simpatico, has transformed into someone she doesn't recognize, a feeling I think many can relate to. The more Ginger loses her identity to the control of werewolf urges, the more Bridget's personality coalesces and forms. We gradually witness the revelation of a power imbalance between the two, with Ginger as the leader and Bridget the follower. As those lifelong roles flip, Bridget begins to think and act independently, emerging as a decision-making force to be reckoned with. It's Bridget's choice to infect herself with lycanthropy, a desperate attempt to preserve her bond with the sister she's losing, but a gesture she enters into with full knowledge. She's prepared to face what's ahead in her own different way, not a declarative statement on the correct way universally for every woman, but the right path for her. Bridget's resourceful, assumes control of her situation, asserts her individuality, and discovers who she is. Someone who wants to live, who refuses to die in her bedroom, who can't willingly consume a dying man's blood. Someone with grit and courage and a love that literally embraces her sister even at Ginger's most gruesome. Although we're left wondering how Bridget's infection will affect her future, one thing's clear. She survived the terror of adolescence, and it made her an even stronger woman. So we get to watch these young women unfold and become new versions of themselves. And there's this kind of perfect balance that exists between them. Like, they have a really great character arc because we see Ginger's unraveling, Mm -hmm. but that leads to Bridget's awakening, really. And they are the dark and the light, the ego and the id, the regular person, and then the shadow self. And it's like they're born to be each other's fate. And it's such a unique look because I feel like there aren't too many horror movies that take a look at sibling love in this way or there's like some kind of romantic love involved interesting that you mentioned romantic love um i want to talk more about the sisters and their relationship in our final thought which is sisterhood sacred secrecy and queering ginger snaps in an article for morbidlybeautiful.com guest author mr bones writes the bonds of sisterhood are commonly portrayed in horror Sisters are seen as a force to be reckoned with. They are stronger together than apart, standing by each other's side no matter what. This certainly is the case in Ginger Snaps. Ginger and Bridget share secrets, they're fiercely protective of each other, and together they are resilient. They even have an oath to kill themselves together. Throughout the film, you can see the bond they share, especially how protective these sisters are of one another. When Bridget is antagonized in gym class, Ginger is by her side and stands up to her bully. Later, Bridget tries to rescue Ginger when she is attacked by the creature, and then she seeks out help from someone claiming to have knowledge of lycanthropes in hopes of stopping her sister's transformation. The bonds shared by these sisters empower them in their own ways. When Bridget tries to find her sister help, she breaks out of her shell and begins defying her sister for the first time. Prior to Ginger's transformation, they had a typical sister relationship with Ginger as 
with Bridget as the younger sister who wanted to be just like her big sister. Mm-hmm. When Bridget sees how much Ginger has changed and not just physically, she becomes frightened and determined to save her sister from fully transforming into a werewolf. So, okay. Yes. These sisters do have an extremely close bond. Mm-hmm. And it could also be seen as really um, different. <laughs> okay, but like that was my first thought. The very first time I watched this movie, I was like, they're very, very close to each other. <laughs> yes, yes. According to Joanna Isaacson, the sisters' relationship also ventures beyond the pale of accepted feminism by threatening to break the ultimate taboo, incest. A scene where Bridget pierces Ginger's belly button is staged as a kind of sex scene. And I think that was the moment for me when I saw this yeah. film. I was like, I was like, oh, okay, this is getting to a really interesting place. I for real thought there was going to be a plot twist and like one of them was going to be adopted. So it was like, okay. But then there was no plot twist. <laughs> I was like, hmm. They are related. Yes. <laughs> So, okay, to continue with Isaacson's quote, a scene where Bridget pierces Ginger's belly button is staged as a kind of sex scene, and another moment has Bridget peeking under the sleeping Ginger's blanket and intensely observing her sister's phallic tail, suggesting potential queer, intersex, and trans narratives. This phallic growth underscores the sister's rejection of the definition of woman linked to the biological reproduction of breeders. While this nonconformity is liberating, it inevitably leads to gender's demise. As Jules Joanne Gleason argues, the measures taken against gender deviance is a regu- is regulatory violence that stands as warning, as a warning to all women. In the end, Bridget will take on this regu- regulatory role herself, breaking from gender's tran- transgressive lure and ultimately killing her. Unquote. And there's even a scene where Ginger tells Bridget that Ginger's, my DNA has changed so much that we're barely sisters anymore. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Which I think was the other clue for me where I was like, where is this going to go? So. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> if you take out the fact that they are sisters, this movie is queer as fuck. Yes. It really is. And according to, yeah, and according to Tanya McDonald, quote, out by 16 could mean the many ways that they can defy containment out of school, out of their parents' home, out of the suburbs, out of restrictive ideas of socially constructed femininity. The fear of being out of time by the age of 16 emphasizes the oath's potential as a suicide pact and reinforces the seriousness of the Together Forever oath. With the onset of Ginger's lycanthropy, the sister's blood oath can be seen as an encoded speech act that conflates with being out of the closet and out of suburbia. With a deliciously ambiguous togetherness and complicates it with a supernatural conception of forever. Because this queer reading of the state of being out by 16 appears to be quite obvious, the fact that it has been nearly ignored by scholarship about the film seems quite mysterious. 
Only April Miller has suggested that the sister's uncommonly strong bond may be homoerotic, and she acknowledges a single such moment, the navel-piercing scene, when in fact encodings of erotic partnership between Ginger and Bridget appear frequently throughout the film. Each girl demands constant affirmation that her sister will never leave her, and the demonstrations of these devotional relations reinforce a reading of erotic partnership between the characters. Miller alludes to a scene in which Bridget, in an effort to protect Ginger from the werewolf virus invading her blood, climbs atop her sister's body to pierce Ginger's navel with the silver ring. Ginger wreathes beneath her sister during the piercing and suggests that Bridget should sport a matching ring. However, the piercing scene only presses Ginger's promises to Bridget that transformation and its orgasmic possibilities. She says in the scene, you see fireworks supernovas and she says this is so us be so ginger is without a doubt out by 16 emerging as a womanly wolfish lesbian in one ferocious swoop well (laughs) yeah so she's like having an orgasm while her sister's piercing her belly button i mean we're not here to kink shame it's a wild ride but it is a wild ride (laughs) It's a wild ride of emotions. (laughs) Yes. So McDonald also says that by only looking at Ginger Snaps as a cisgendered woman's coming of age story and completely ignoring the main character's fears of suburban heteronormativity, we're missing a huge chunk of the horror story. McDonald says Ginger suggests feminist frustration with the code of compulsive heterosexuality when she clarifies that her supernatural hunger is not exclusively sexual. I get this ache, she says. It's not for sex. It's to tear things to pieces. What Ginger tears to pieces in this film are the heteronormative expectations of female adolescent sexuality, destabilizing gender through the excesses of representation and desire to destroy the fantasy of a stable sexual identity. In Linda Hart's terms, feeling repugnance for a suburban heteronormativity should not necessarily be equated with feeling repugnance for heterosexuality, but by offering a glimpse of supernatural lesbian lust, the film earns its portrayal of a heroine who resists sexual advances from both men and women to queer herself as the final girl who loves the female monster. Reading Ginger's transformation into a werewolf as a potential coming out narrative suggests that Ginger Snaps is only partly a film about the horrors of becoming a woman. It also offers adolescent viewers as well as older audiences the chance to read the film as an examination of the social horror of growing up lesbian in the bleakness of Canadian suburbs where female same-sex desire continues in some ways to resist declarations of identity politics. Part of the subversive power of Ginger Snaps is the film's investment in the beauty of transgression as it exists in the twists and turns of sexual identification. Unquote. (laughs) Wowee. So accepting this film as a queer feminist film becomes even easier when we see how the heteronormative mother reacts to finding out what her daughters have been up to. Uh, Noah Noah Berlatsky says there's a moment when the movie seems to foresee a plausible happy ending for that love whose name it never speaks. The sister's mom, Pam, discovers that Ginger is killing her way through her classmates. She's understandably upset but she doesn't turn them in. Instead, she reacts the way you'd hope a small-town mom would by learning that her kid is queer. She offers to burn down her house and chuck her mediocre husband to support her child. (laughs) 
I love it. <laughs> the mom is one of my favorite characters. Oh in my this. god, she's amazing. Yes, she's a little intrusive, but mm-hmm. I think that whole scene is so gr- great. It makes up for everything. <laughs> yes, it's true because she's like, "Fuck this, <laughs> we're gonna get out of here." <laughs> yes, it's 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 grand. <laughs> it is grand. Oh, what a great mom. <laughs> yeah, so. That's it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Let's talk about some good things that have happened lately. Let's put some sugar cubes in our coffee. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I feel like it gets increasingly more difficult to do this with every episode. <laughs> so I'm actually kind of glad that we are doing it because I think we need to look for the good things. Yeah. When I came up with this concept, I was like, this is going to be so great. And now yeah. I'm like... What the fuck even am I going to talk about this week? <laughs> I mean, um, listen, like, I won't say who, but somebody in my family passed away a few days ago. And it's been really, it's been really difficult for um, everyone. So I guess for me, it was like, after this had happened, I was really upset. I was depressed. And that, the the next day, like, this person had died the night before. The next day... Uh, my husband had to go to work and so it was just me and my son alone and he was the perfect angel that entire day and it was like he knew that I just needed to chill out that day Mm -hmm. and it was like the best not that he's like bad ever really yeah but like he (laughs) was like not fussy at all because he's like teething right now too he wasn't fussy he slept great for both of his naps he just wanted to play and read books like he was he wasn't getting into into trouble like he wasn't trying to climb anything like he normally does so I was just like wow this is like a really good day like he's like really chill and so I it was almost like he knew that I just needed a chill day so that was sweet yeah it was a hard day but it was it was made easier because my son was very intuitive to my feelings it was really interesting yes i mean sometimes babies just know you know yeah i mean sometimes they're like puppies and they just know (laughs) i just said this recently to a friend who listens to the show hi amber but um i was telling them that uh you know children and dogs are similar there's they re- really they hardly know, they really are. There are very few differences between them. <laughs> it's true. Oh, um, let's see. Good stuff that happened to me this week. Um, well, I've been having a really difficult time with this pregnancy. It's not been um well, let's just say when people say that like you glow all the time, they're liars. <laughs> So I've been feeling like pretty crappy about that. So Mm -hmm. my husband has like really taken notice and has been helping me a lot. And he got me like a bunch of stuff from Lush Mm. and got me this pair of overalls that I really, really wanted because I'm pregnant and I just want to be like comfortable. So he ordered me these freaking lame overalls for oh I shouldn't say that he ordered me these ridiculous overalls from Aerie and they're the most comfortable things and I just am so grateful for him and he's been a huge help throughout oh that's great all this 
ridiculous hard stuff. So, that Aww. yeah, that was my highlight of the week. That's good. Yes. That's nice. I yeah. I would actually love to get some overalls. I haven't had overalls since I was a kid. I they think. are the best. I feel like the farmer that I was meant to be when I wear them. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. so cute. Yep, and my big baby bump is like, "Hello, I'm here." When I wear them, so yeah, that's so cute. <laughs> oh yeah. my gosh, that's so nice. Yes. Well, everyone, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. Please don't forget to send us some happy things that have happened to you. Um, and we'll read them on the show. I really think that nobody has anything to say. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> I truly think <laughs> nobody has anything to say. And they're you know like, what? Mm, that's wow, okay you're having too. you're having good times. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, we're struggling to say good things, too. So oh, my God, yeah. Please, it's all right. Yeah. Um, but if you like what we, do, what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors, so let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your financial support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com com slash merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop yeah and we know that times are tough so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media facebook at good morning nancy twitter at good morning nan and instagram at good morning nancy podcast don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show yes and don't forget black lives matter and trans lives matter still so check out our show notes on how you can help out We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.